We got another action-packed weekend of mixed martial arts and the best place to do all your researching for these upcoming events is on the MMA Fight Archive. We got PFL, LFA, Fury FC and Aries FC going down on top of the UFC this weekend and the best place for you to get direct links to past fights for all these upcoming competitors is on the MMA Fight Archive. It saves you a bunch of time in terms of scouring the web yourself. You can all get it on one page so you can make the best predictions, analysis and bets for yourself knowing that you have crossed off and left no stone unturned thanks to the MMA Fight Archive. Try it out for a seven-day free trial. Link in the description below. Find out why there are over 35 members on the on the service and why they trusted to get all their researching needs done i promise you guys we are taking over make sure you check it out link in the description below or the top comment now let's get right into the episode Welcome to another episode of the MMA Lockcast. I'm your host, Manpreet, aka MMA Lock of the Night, and your boy on social media at MMALOTN. This week, we're going over UFC Jacksonville, headlined by a big-time featherweight matchup between Josh Emmett, who just lost out on his opportunity with the interim title back in February to Yair Rodriguez. He's going up against 13-0 hot prospect Ilya Taporia. Very fun matchup there. We also have Amanda Hebos taking on Macy Barber in the co-main event and a ton of other great matchups going down in Florida. It's always fun when the UFC is in front of a sold-out, action-packed crowd so we can just get the vibes that a, a nice arena brings, especially with some of these high-level fights that we got coming up. Before I get into it, I just want to quickly make a note. The audio on the fighter backgrounds that you guys are about to hear might be slightly different from the audio that you'll be hearing from the video portions of the episode as well. So I apologize if there's any change or anything too disruptive there. But just hearing it myself before, it sounds fine. But you'll be able to tell the difference that it wasn't coming from this mic, which it normally does throughout the entire episode. So I apologize for that in advance. All right, let's just quickly go over the lock of the night and dog of the night predictions of last week. It was pretty good for, well, it was very good for the lock of the night. It was not so good for the dog of the night. Starting off with the lock of the night, we go 4-0 across uh, uh, PFL, LFA, Bellator, and the UFC for the UFC. We went pretty chalk heavy here as I thought it was a pretty easy read to go with the Manuel Torres and Nicholas Mota fight. Did not go to decision, obviously sprinkled some of that under one and a half, which came through as well. But uh, yeah, like I said, 3-0 on regionals as well, including a beautiful minus 135 play on Julia Budd. Close fight. Glad she decided to go to her grappling more so in the second and third round, which is why I believe she got her hand raised that night. That increases the lock of the night predictions now to 52 and uh, 15 for the year now that's 78% hit rate Mwah, chef's kiss I'm, I believe I'm doing very damn good in those lock of the night uh, predictions for you guys dog of the night not so much this past weekend as we go 0-4 it could have been 1-3 had Zach Paunga actually gotten the decision victory that I believe he deserved a lot of people thought that was an egregious decision myself included again there's obviously some biased some uh some bias attached to that on my end of things but to see how many people scored for Paunga as well I thought we should have gotten the nod there but we go 0-4 on the dog of the night predictions this uh past week that pushes the record or drops the record to 30 and 37 which is a 45 percent hit rate on dog of the night plays again that's one uh, you know underdog spot for every single card this year not just ufc but all of the cards that i do predictions for bellator pfl lfa cage warriors uh but thankfully again 45 percent hit rate for underdogs not too shabby considering the plus money that we're getting on a lot of them but uh yeah not my proudest performance in terms of underdogs this past weekend reminder pfl and lfa go down this weekend as well and the only place that you'll be able to find breakdowns for those for myself is on the patreon link in the description below we killed it last week on lfa and pfl i think i only got one prediction wrong on both of those cards even bellator i think i only got one or two predictions wrong on that card as well but i do my best work on the regional scene check out the link in the description below i promise you will not be disappointed 
Uh, and lastly, shout out to Godzilla Wins, where I post my articles on a weekly basis over there. Wednesdays, we drop the main event prediction. And then Thursdays, I drop the three best money line plays as well. Uh, links to those can be found in the description below of this video. Once I release them, I update the description to show you guys the URL that you can click on to go show them some love. All right, I think that's about it. Again, Fight Archive, check it out. We're killing it right now. Top comment has a link to the Fight Archive and it's in the description below. Check out a seven-day free trial to see what all the buzz is about, especially if you do your own predicting, uh, analyzing, or breaking down of fights. That's the best place to do it. There's a reason we have some of the top analysts and coaches in the game on the service as well because they see the reasoning behind it and the use of it promise you won't be disappointed all right check it out link in the description below let's get into this 14 fight main card or 14 fight card i keep saying main card this is the second week in a row that i kept saying main card 14 fight full card going down in jacksville let's get right into it kicking things off in the flyweight division we got 13 and 0 tatsuro tyra going up against 8 and 2 clayton rodriguez since joining the UFC, Tetsuro Tyra has gone 3-0, finishing his last two opponents, CJ Vergara and Jessica, or Jesus Aguilar. I almost got him mixed up with Jessica Aguilar from back in the day. But uh, yes, uh, Jesus Aguilar was the last foe of his who he was able to submit in the first round. And that is Tyra's game. He has a smothering Brazilian jiu-jitsu game, and he does a very good job in terms of getting fights into that realm when he's very much you know, set on getting it there, whether it's jumping on the back of his opponent or dragging them into the clinch and pulling them to the mat. He does a very good job in terms of implementing his grapple heavy approach, which is why you always see him as a heavy favorite in most of his matchups. Last time around, I believe he was in that minus 1200 range of being a favorite. And this time around, he's about minus 300, maybe even more by the time the fight goes down. Uh, his striking still needs a little bit of work, but he does a great job in terms of using his 70-inch reach at flyweight to really pick his opponents apart from distance and then eventually crash that pocket so that he can get the takedown and go to work. At 23 years old, Tyra is a very promising prospect, and I look forward to seeing his improvements. And one more thing I wanted to just quickly allude to is people will notice that his three fights prior, and even this one, are taking place very early in the card, usually the first or second fight of the night. And that's due to the fact that the Japanese uh, fan base has an opportunity to watch him fight live rather than having to stay up until 3, 4, 5 a.m. to watch him compete. I'm sure the UFC is itching to get this guy in Japan to finally compete in front of his home fans. But for now, he'll have to settle with being one of the first two fights on these UFC cards whenever they take place in North America. His opponent this weekend, Clayton Rodriguez, had a lot of hype coming into the UFC after his dominant contender series victory over Curatolo. Uh, but he fumbled a bag in his UFC debut against CJ Vergara. He had a solid first round, but Vergara really took over in the second and third rounds, taking advantage of the questionable cardio from Clayton, and Vergara was able to get his hand raised via decision that night. Clayton made quick work of Shannon Ross in his bounce-back fight last time around, where he knocked out Shane, uh, Shannon Ross, like I said, in the first round and made it look very easy. That's what people were excited about when he first came into the UFC. His explosivity, his power, and his speed is very difficult to deal with for a lot of these flyweights. But we do have to keep an eye on what his cardio looks like when fighter is able to wear on him and drag him, in the t drag him into deep waters similar to what Vergara was able to do. He's trained with high-level training partners and coaches throughout his uh, professional MMA career, but most recently, he's teamed up with Shootabox Diego Lima, which is most famously known for Charles Oliveira and Daniel Santos. Another fight, and more chalk for Mr. Tatsuro's Hira. Minus 300 is the last number that I saw on him here, and I wouldn't be surprised if we see it increase again, considering the hype that's on this kid. And I think he is the overall better fighter here against Clayton Rodriguez, but I don't think we can just automatically discredit Rodriguez's chances in this matchup. He's a very high-level fighter himself. The only issue in his game seems to be his cardio. When things aren't going his way, it seems like he kind of gives up on himself, gets demoralized, and allows his opponents to take over. 
just as what happened in the CJ Vergara fight. But I like the fact that he's changed camps over there to the Chuta Box Diego Lima camp. Uh, I think that might give him some newfound confidence and possibly even the ability to pull off an upset in this matchup. So I'm still predicting Tetsura to win this fight, but I'm a little bit hesitant considering that we might just be on the the, the recency bias train here, which is why you know Tyro is such a big favorite. He should win this fight. He should be the superior fighter overall, but minus 300 is a little bit wide for me, so I'll be passing. I might also take a trickle or a sprinkle, I should say, on the Tyra round three prop. But prediction is going to be Tyra, and I think he gets the late stoppage in this matchup. Next up in the featherweight division, we got 19-6 and six, Jamal Emers going up against 11-2 and two, Jack Jenkins. Jamal Emers is uh, really up and down throughout his UFC career thus far as he's gone 2-2, two and two, alternating wins and losses over his last four fights. Last time around, he pulled off a solid upset over a highly touted prospect, 23-0, Hussein Askabov. Jamal Emers came in there, stuffed the takedowns, utilized superior striking and speed to get his hand raised by decision that night, and halted the hype train that was Askabov coming into the UFC. That just showcases how good of a fighter Jamal Emers could really be, but his issue at times in the past has been his fight IQ. Not pursuing takedowns and trying to grind out Giga Chikadze more rather than striking with him. And even in the Pat Sabatini fight, playing footsies with a dangerous jiu-jitsu player like Sabatini all are no-nos and Jamal Emers fell victim to both of those opponents. But you see him throughout his career, which is why he's been able to accrue a 19-6 and record that he is a high-level fighter with top 10 potential if he can just rein in his fight IQ a little bit more and stick to the basics and you really uh, take advantage of what his advantages are over his opponents no matter what the matchup is. He's a good wrestler, so he can take strikers to the ground if he needs to. And he's a good striker as well, so he can thwart takedowns and outstrike his opponents as well. He has great cardio. He's gone five rounds a couple times on the regional scene. So look for big things if Jamal Emers can really get things going now, especially if he's able to get this two-fight winning streak with the win this weekend. His opponent, Jack Jenkins, is on a great winning streak of it in his own right, but also just picked up his first UFC win in his last matchup against Don Shanus, which was his UFC debut. I thought this kid has, or think, still think this kid has tremendous potential and feel like he could be the next big thing out of that Australian scene. However, he needs to go out there and really showcase that against his opponent this week in Jamal Emers, and that's where we'll be able to see if he is really what I think he is or if he's just another flash in the pan. He's 30 years old, so even a loss this weekend doesn't mean the end of the road for him. Maybe it's a good experience. Uh, it will be a good learning experience for him to put towards the future of his UFC career and showcase that he can still bounce back. But he's a great all-around fighter, has tremendous wrestling, and a nasty striking game that centers around uh, a lot of calf kicks. He's trained in the past along the likes of Alexander Volkanovsky and the rest of those guys down there in the Australian and New Zealand scene. But I think he does have a bright future. It just will come down to how he does against these higher level fighters on the North American scene. This is a stiff test for Jack Jenkins, and I really want to pick the guy because I'm very high on him. I think he is a tremendous prospect, and I think that he's just waiting to, you know, have his coming out party. But I feel like this is too big of a step up from him, from Don Shanus to a guy like Jamal Emers. If Jamal Emers has his fight IQ about him, he can stuff the takedowns that are coming his way, stop the calf kicking game as well, and utilize the speed and striking advantage in this matchup to pick apart Jack Jenkins and win this fight by decision. Again, close fight. I'd only take Emers around that minus 150 line if those are the odds we were getting I think he's a little bit more of a favorite than that right now but I think he's a side here I think he wins this fight and like I said I think he gets it done by decision going down in the lightweight division we got 8-0 fan favorite Trevor Peak going up against 13-6 short notice UFC newcomer Jose Chepe Mariscal Starting off on the Trevor Peak side here, he made good on his UFC debut last time around by going to war with Eric Gonzalez and knocking him out with a few seconds left on the clock in the first round. That fight embodied exactly what Trevor Peak is really good at, and that's creating a war and thriving within it. 
We saw him on the contender series suffer a very unfortunate uh, knockdown, I believe it was, in that first round. And he was very much struggling early against his opponent, Malik Lewis, but was able to rally back in the second round when it looked like Malik really started to run out of gas after trying to finish Trevor Peak with everything he had in that first round. But that's Trevor Peak's style. This man is a warrior. This guy is a brawler. This guy is a fighter. I wouldn't call him a mixed martial artist. This guy just likes to fight. He puts the pressure on his opponents, and even though his striking defense could use a lot of work, at this point in time, his durability is really good, so he's able to take some big shots and continue chugging forward and eventually find a knockout of his own. He's only had two fights go over the one-and-a-half-round mark, but one of those fights only went over by seven seconds, and another fight only by 32 seconds. This guy loves to brawl. This guy loves to knock his opponents out. And hopefully, you know, if the UFC knows what they're doing, they will continue to put him in fun fights against other strikers because I don't think his ceiling is very high in terms of being a high-level UFC fighter, but his ceiling is high in terms of being a very entertaining and fan-friendly fighter. His opponent this weekend, Jose Mariscal, is one of the most deserving fighters from the regional scene to have finally made the jump to the UFC. It was just his luck for going on a three-fight winning streak and having this short-notice opportunity come available to him to go up against a warrior like Trevor Peak. Mariscal trains out of the Elevation Fight Team in Denver, Colorado, and has faced so many different UFC or current or former UFC fighters along the names of uh, Gregor Gillespie. Uh, he's fought uh, Steve Garcia, Sean Soriano, Pat Sabatini, Bryce Mitchell. He's seen it all on the regional scene, and it's about time he finally made it to the UFC. He has a lot of uh, good traits in terms of his skills. He's a solid grappler. He's a very good combination striker with big power in his hands. The kind, A little bit of a red flag from him is has been his durability in the past. It's been a couple of years now since he has been knocked out last, but there are some concerns if he does get clipped clean by most of his opponents, uh, he, he might go down. But like I said, his durability has looked good. He's eaten some big shots his past couple of fights and stayed about it. It's just his experience. Uh, and his all-around game that are very good uh, assets to bring into the UFC for him to potentially be successful at this level. I'm expecting pure violence in this matchup. Like I outlined in the Trevor Peak background, the guy only knows violence with fights never reaching the third round. It's either him, well, actually it's only ever been him going out there and getting the finish. He was close to getting finished himself, like I said, on the contender series. And I think that's something that Mariska could totally take advantage of here. He's way more experienced, has a better overall game. It's just his durability that I have a little bit of a question mark with. At underdog money, which is what he was at earlier this week, I believe he should be the, you know, the dog of the night essentially. But considering the amount of love that's coming in on him throughout this uh the, the last 12 hours alone uh it seems like he might end up being the favorite come fight time i believe fight doesn't go to decision is the best way to go about this fight under two and a half the under one and a half might get a little bit sketchy considering that mariscal might take a grapple heavy approach to wear down peak and eventually finish him off later on in this matchup but i'm still going to go with mariscal way more experienced way more talented it's just Kenneth's durability hold up. I'm hoping it does. Give me Jose Chepe Mariscal to pull off the upset here. Or again, I don't know if he'll be the underdog by fight time, but I'm expecting him to provide the violence and violence being my best prediction for this matchup. Up next, we got a battle of strawweights here between 8-1 Tabitha Baby Shark Ricci and Jillian the Savage Robertson, who comes in with a 12-7 record. Starting off with Tabitha Ricci, she's on a three-fight winning streak since dropping that unfortunate matchup to Manon Firo, which was her short-notice UFC debut up a weight class against a much bigger opponent. Tabitha Ricci, though, has shown how good she actually is while competing down at strawweight and just absolutely dominating her last three opponents. She's done a great job in terms of dragging her opponents to the ground, grinding them out from that top position, or pulling off a submission victory over a veteran like she did last time around against Jessica Pena. Tabitha Ricci has been training in that California area and cross-training even in Arizona at times, but I believe that she's a she's already a solid all-around fighter, and at 28 years old, she's only going to be getting better. Her bread and butter is the grappling and her BJJ black belt, where she's able to just do solid work from on top. She's very difficult to deal with in terms of her control, and she has tremendous submission defense as well, which helps her against other fighters who have a good jujitsu game of their own. 
Talking about a good jiu-jitsu game. We got Jillian Roberts riding a two-fight winning streak. But sandwiched within that two-fight winning streak, she actually took a grappling match against former strawweight champion Rose Namajunas and tapped her out in, within just under a minute uh, of that matchup uh, starting. I feel as though a lot of that will be brought into this MMA game for her in terms of the public being a little bit higher on her than she should be. Obviously, we know grappling and MMA are two completely different combat sports, but I believe that people think that the, you know just because of what she showed in the grappling match means that she should be able to go out there and handle her business against other high-level grapplers. Don't get me wrong. She's a very solid fighter. She has a tremendous amount of experience for only being 28 years old as well. But I think that her shortcomings in terms of just being too wrapped up in her jiu-jitsu game is the reason she ends up losing her fights. We see her just playing off her back a little bit too much. And when she's not able to get a reversal going or a submission off her back, her opponents are able to just beat her up from on top. Or if they're able to stuff the takedowns, they can beat her up on the feet because her striking still needs a lot of work. That's what we saw in the Miranda Maverick and J.J. Aldridge fights, which were her last two losses. But we also see how good she can be when she's able to get fights to the ground, like she did against Maria Agapova and Piera Rodriguez. A lot of people are high on Jillian Robertson, and it's hard not to be considering the run that she's on. But I think that Tabitha Ricci will shut all of that down. I think she is the superior grappler, and I think she's the better wrestler that she'll be able to get that top position and control Robertson while Robertson continuously tries throwing up submissions or trying to get reversals going so that she can end up in a better dominant position. But Tabitha Ricci is too privy to that. She saw it in the Poliana-Vienna fight, and I get it. Jillian Robertson is probably more aggressive and more successful than Poliana, but I still believe that Ricci has shown she can deal with it in that fight. She should be able to deal with it in this fight, beating up Jillian Robertson, controlling this fight for the majority of it, and winning it via decision. Moving to the lightweight division for a battle of high-level grapplers, we got Matosh Robetsky going up against Loik Radzibov. Starting off on the Rebetsky side, coming in with a 17-1 record, this man is a beast, which is why Dana White on the Contender Series nicknamed him Rebeasty. This man is very fun to watch, has a very strong wrestling game where he's able to get opponents to the ground and smash them from that top position. Not often does he go to a decision because he's able to get the dominant position that he needs to either pull off a submission or posture up for a big ground and pound and to finish his opponents. You see a lot of KOs on his record, which immediately makes people think that he's a crazy knockout artist on the feet. But the truth of the matter is, is that he takes his opponents to the ground and just batters them from on top. And it's very difficult to deal with considering how much power he's able to generate when he's able to posture up and get these dominant positions. He's a very fun prospect at 30 years old who still needs to prove himself in terms of the higher level of competition that the UFC has to offer. He was originally scheduled to fight Omar Morales earlier this year, but Nick Fiore jumped in to, on short notice to allow Rubeski to, to still go out there and compete and make his UFC debut. I'm very excited about this prospect and even more excited to see him fight higher levels of competition. And that's what he's getting this weekend against Loic Radzibov, who also comes in with a 17-4-1 record. And he's going to be coming into his second UFC fight after being victorious in his short notice UFC debut against Esteban Rybovics back in March. Loic had a bit of a roller coaster start to the year where he thought he was going to be on the new season of The Ultimate Fighter. But a day before the camera was, start, was starting to roll, uh, he actually got pulled from the show due to the fact that Conor McGregor wanted to add a couple of his own fighters to the show. And Loic was unfortunately one of the cast-offs due to that. Loic voiced his frustration on his Instagram page, but within a couple days was quickly given the opportunity to jump in on short notice against Esteban Rybovics, and he made good on it. So good on him for not having to fight through that unfortunate uh, whole contender, not sorry, uh, ultimate fighter show. Uh, I'm sure he's happy to just get right into the UFC, and he deserves to. He's a high-level opponent who competed on the PFL scene for a couple years. Uh, in 2019 and 2021, he made it to the finals, but ended up falling up short to Natan Schult and Hausch Mamfio last time around. Now on a two-fight winning streak, he's hoping to stamp himself a permanent spot on the UFC roster with another big win this weekend. But we'll see how that plays out considering how high level of a grappler both him and his opponent are. 
I love this matchup, and I kind of agree with the odds being where they are, roughly around that pick'em line, or with Rome Bescu as a slight favorite. I think his size and his strength is going to be a little bit too hard for Radzibov to get his takedowns with and to keep uh, Robescu down. And then both guys suffer from a little bit of that cardio issue, but I think it's going to be Rombescu who ends up getting the better positions on top and also lands the more significant damage in the striking realm. I could see a knockout transpire from the Rombescu side, but I could also see this being a long, drawn-out grappling battle that Rombescu gets the better of. So give me the Polish fighter here to get his hand raised by decision. Next up, we move one division up to the welterweights, where we got 16-5, Randy Root Boy Brown going up against 18-6, Wellington Terman. Starting off on the Randy Brown side of things, he's coming off a loss to Jack Della Maddalena back in February, which snapped a four-fight winning streak that Brown was riding. Brown was really starting to come into his own in terms of being a lengthy striker from distance that was able to batter his opponents and evade the big shots and go to a decision and get his hand raised there. But Jack Della Maddalena did a great job in terms of cutting off the cage, getting Randy up against the cage, and then uh, letting go with the combination that eventually dropped Brown. That's when we saw Maddalena follow up with a bunch of hammer fists and eventually the rear naked choke that got him the win that night. Brown is still a very tough out and somebody that I still think, uh, still believe deserves to be in the top 15 given his skill set. He continuously improves, but it's really his striking game where he shines the most. He, he has done a phenomenal job in terms of using his straight shots down the pipe as well as teep kick up the middle to keep his opponents at distance. It's just rounding out the footwork game a little bit more so he doesn't get caught up against the cage and put into a similar position that Jack Della Maddalena was able to take advantage of. On the flip side for Wellington Terman, he's coming off a decision loss to Andre Petrosky and has been finding some issues in terms of finding his footing in the UFC. I believe he has a 2-3 and three record now since joining the the promotion and really can't get much going. Uh, you know, he, he struggles in terms of asserting his grappling dominance against most opponents. And then in the striking realm, he still has a lot of work to do there. He's been training at it to share MMA. So, you know, he's been working with Alex Pereira and the other great striking coaches and fighters that they have out of that gym. But he still needs to translate it by showcasing it inside the octagon. At 18 and 6 and 26 years old, he has a lot of experience at this point in time, but he really needs to start rounding it out if he hopes to hold on to his UFC roster spot. I feel like this is a great fight for Randy Brown to bounce back with. The guy is a slick striker and very difficult to deal with when he gets into his groove. I think that Wellington Terman's striking disadvantage in this matchup will leave him kind of just having questions and confused and frustrated from the outside when he's unable to close the distance and gets the takedowns that he needs to be successful in this matchup. Yes, he is the better jiu-jitsu player in this fight but you can't have jiu-jitsu if you can't get the takedowns and i believe that we'll see randy brown do a great job of staying on his bicycle implementing his distance striking maintaining that range and destroying Terman from distance give me randy brown to win by decision we got a pair of heavyweights throwing down in this next matchup between 12 and 3 austin lane going up against 6 and 3 justin taffa Starting off on the Austin Lane side, he successfully made good on his contender series matchup last time around by defeating Heacher Jacoby, TKOing him in the dying seconds of the first round. He did get taken down in that matchup and sustained a little bit of damage until he was able to eventually pull off the reversal, get that top position, and then rain down big shots to get his hand raised. Most people remember Austin Lane as being the guy that got knocked out by Greg Hardy back in 2018 on the Contender Series, but Austin Lane went through a little bit more trials and tribulations on the regional scene before eventually earning himself a spot again on the Contender Series, which he made good on and now is finding himself in the UFC. He's a tremendously big fighter at six foot six with an 80 inch reach. Uh, he comes from a football background, if I'm not mistaken. Very athletic, very explosive, and a ton of knockout power. He even holds a win over former UFC fighter Juan Adams, who did a very good job in terms of dragging Austin Lane to the ground over and over again for about three rounds until he ran out of gas and Austin Lane was able to muster up a big punch to knock out Juan Adams and get his hand raised. 
that is the big kind of question mark on Austin Lane is his grappling, his defensive grappling to be specific. If he's able to keep fights upright, he does a good job in terms of traversing the cage, utilizing his range and his distance to piece his opponents up from distance and eventually find that knockout. His opponent this weekend, Justin Taffa, is riding a two-fight winning streak where he's able to where he's been able to knock out both of his opponents in the first round. However, wins over guys like Harry Hunsucker and Parker Porter will only do so much for you. It's when he starts fighting the higher level of competition again where we'll see whether he still has it at 29 years old or not. It's a very salty record at 6-3 and three and you know he's been able to deliver on a couple big knockouts but he hasn't really been able to get momentum really on his side. Let's see if he can get this to a 3-fight winning streak and showcase his devastating knockout power once again. Most people look to take him to the ground to try to take advantage of him, but we also saw Jared Vandera do a good job in terms of dancing around Justin Taffa and upping the output on him, staying away from the big strikes that were coming back his way to get his hand raised. But if you are going to exchange in the pocket with Justin Taffa, just know that you got hell and brimstone coming your way, considering the power and ferocity that he throws with. I want to believe in Lane's ability to maintain distance and keep on his bicycle and just stay on the outside. But I just also feel that Taffa is inevitably going to land a big shot here. I think the fight doesn't go to decision is probably the best way to go about it. But I think that it's eventually going to be Justin Taffa who eventually finds uh, the chin of Austin Lane as Lane tries to crash the pocket and get his own offense off. If Lane can land some takedowns, that might be able to help his side here. But I think he's going to struggle to hold Taffa down or even get Taffa down and inevitably eat one of those big nuclear bombs that Taffa has in his hands. Give me Taffa by knockout probably in the first round. Next up in the flyweight division, we got 14-8 Zalgas Zumagulov going up against 7-1 Joshua Van. Starting off on the Zumagulov side, talk about a rough run from being 1-5 in his UFC career and having a couple fights fall out for him over the last couple months. He's been struggling to get an opponent to meet him on a specific date, which is why the UFC has brought in his opponent Joshua Van to hopefully meet him this weekend and Zalgas to potentially save his UFC career. It's very unfortunate that Zalgas is on the run that he is, considering that a couple of the fights that he did have uh, probably could have gone his way. The Jeff Molina fight, the Charles Johnson fights, very close fights that could have been scored in his favor, and even the Haulian Paiva fight from earlier in his UFC career. Unfortunately, judges just don't seem to really like him, it seems. But uh, Zumugulov is still a very high-level fighter. You know, a former champion on the regional scene with wins over former and current UFC fighters like Tagirul Bekov, Tyson Nam, and even Ali Bagulutinov showcasing how high-level he can actually be. At 34 years old, he is starting to hit a little bit of a decline, but I still think he has enough solid skills to go out there and showcase that he can still hang with the top of the division. He has big power in his hands as he's able to close the distance and land his big winging hooks, but he also has a very educated grappling game that I feel like he should lean on more often to get his hand raised and to make it look a little bit more dominant to the judges. But... I believe we're going to see a very pissed off and motivated version of him this weekend, not to mention with that new Zaddy the Baddy haircut that he's been fashioning over the last couple months. People just want to see it flow. People just want to see it in the cage finally. And hopefully his opponent Joshua Van makes the date. Now flipping over to Mr. Van, he was actually scheduled to be on the upcoming season of the Contender Series, but... While being in Vegas and shooting promotional material for the upcoming season, the opportunity arose for him to jump in here on short notice against Zumagulov. And why would you not say yes? I mean, you're already going to fight to see if you can make it to the UFC. Why not take the shortcut and possibly take a loss here uh, and still secure yourself a spot on the UFC roster rather than having to go out there and fight another guy for that roster spot? Van, very young, 21 years old, only made his amateur debut at the ending of 2020. He went 4-0 on the regional scene, jumping to the pro ranks in 2021 and put together a 7-1 record, only losing his third professional fight. It's kind of concerning to know that a guy has only been fighting or fighting MMA period for two and a half years before making the jump to the uh, to the UFC. Is it too early? We'll find out soon, especially considering the large skill gap and, sorry, the large experience gap that he's going to be facing, especially against a guy like Zalgas Sumagulov. 
the crazy experience advantage that Zumagulov here should be more than enough reason to believe that Zumagulov should be able to pull off the victory here. But we don't know how high this, the ceiling on Joshua Van is. He might be ready right now. He might be able to go out there with only two and a half years of MMA experience to defeat a guy like Zumagulov. But knowing how pissed off Zumagulov is, knowing how motivated he is to go out there and get this hand raised, I fully expect him to keep on the gas from the minute this fight starts and even start landing takedowns where he should be able to control Van on the mat. Give me Zumagulov by dominant decision victory here. And I think he can very much cruise in this fight if he chooses the right approach. Aggression, takedowns, top control. Give me Zumagulov to snap this three-fight losing streak. Next up, we have a pretty important welterweight matchup between veteran Neil Magny coming in with a 27-10 record, going up against up-and-coming prospect 10-3, the fresh prince Phil Rowe. Starting off on the Neil Magny side, he's coming off of a loss to Gilbert Burns from earlier this year after calling him out after a very dominant performance against Daniel Rodriguez late last year. But it's coming or becoming very evident that Neil Magny just doesn't really do good against guys that are grapple-heavy threats against him. His last three losses have come against just those guys, Gilbert Burns, Shavkat Rachmanov, and even Michael Chiesa. But other opponents, he's been able to do Neil Magny things. Go out there, put on a high pace, grind on them in the clinch, and just make it a rough night for them. The best part of Magny's game, I believe, is his cardio. He does a phenomenal job in terms of putting pressure on his opponents, keeping them active, keeping them on their back foot, and just keeping that output high. Not a lot of opponents are able to deal with it effectively, which is why he continuously gets his hand raised even at this stage of his career. I've cast on him as a dog for being disrespected multiple times throughout his career, uh, whether it was the Daniel Rodriguez fight or even the Grant Neal or Jeff Neal fight, sorry, I got him mixed up with the uh, the Bellator fighter there, but uh, beating Jeff Neal back in, I believe it was 2020 or 2021, where he just outworked him and out-hustled him and got his hand raised by decision. His opponent this weekend, Phil Rowe, was riding a three-fight winning streak after dropping his UFC debut to Gabe Green by decision. That was a war of a fight where it was Gabe landing the more devastating blows throughout that matchup and then getting his hand raised, like I said, by decision. But Phil Rowe has come back with a vengeance by finishing his last three opponents, two in the second round and one of them, Nico Price, in the third round. Thoreau is really getting into the comfort zone and of being that distant striker of uh, picking his opponents apart with his long range of 80 inches, uh, his six foot three height, and just really just again getting comfortable being a, a sniper of a fighter. His jiu-jitsu game is not too shabby either, but I believe that he still needs a lot of experience against high-level of opponents before we can really figure out if he deserves to be in the top 15 and how high his ceiling actually is. Training down there at Fusion XL in Orlando, you got to believe that he's getting high-level training from uh, a lot of the, the, you know, the names of the coaches are escaping me at the moment, but he has high-level training partners like Leota Machida, who's been popping his head in and out of that gym, uh, Adolfo Vieira, Mike Perry used to train out of there as well, Alex Nicholson, uh, Jacare Souza used to call it home as well. So he's seen a lot of different looks. He has the potential, he has the char- charisma, he has the character, now it's all about if he can put it together in the cage against these high-level opponents, especially this weekend against a guy like Neil Magny. The diminishing durability of Magny is a bit of a concern, but I feel other than that, he should be able to win the majority of this matchup. I don't think Phil Rowe is ready for the whirlwind he is about to uh, you know, find himself in as Magny starts to get into his groove. From that forward pressure to that just grinding clinch game that Magny thrives in, I just think that Phil Rowe will... Start off with a lot of confidence, but that will start to get chipped away at as Magny starts to do his thing. Phil Rowe is going to need to hurt him on numerous occasions to have this fight swing into his favor. But I fully expect the veterancy of uh, Neil Magny to come through here, knowing that he can do work from on top if he gets takedowns or even just conveniently pushes him up against the cage and does his thing in the clinch position he should be able to wear on the gas tank of Phil Rowe maybe finish him in the third round like he did against uh, Daniel Rodriguez otherwise I think he just has a classic Neil Magny performance and goes on and wins a decision next up in the middleweight division we got 21 and 5 Brendan Allen going up against 23 and 8 Bruno Silva 
starting off on the Brendan Allen side, who's streaking at the moment with a four-fight winning streak, which includes his most recent victory over uh, another guy that was streaking at the time, Andre Munez. Brendan Allen did a great job in terms of putting the pressure on him and eventually getting him to the ground in the second round and finding that submission. Allen is a high-level prospect from the LFA days and has had a bit of a rocky start to his UFC career, but now it seems like he's really starting to get into his groove, get that momentum going his way, and trying to make a march towards that top 10 of the division, a spot that I believe he thoroughly deserves. His striking game is very much improving, and I love the kicking game that we're seeing from him, which allows him to really keep his opponents at distance and keep them on the defensive long enough for him to eventually get that takedown that I believe he needs in most fights to end up getting his hand raised. His jiu-jitsu is very high level, especially his ability when he's able to get that dominant position on top of his opponents and rain down big shots, opening up submission opportunities, and then taking full advantage of that. His opponent this weekend, Bruno Silva, snapped a two-fight losing streak last time around by with losses to Alex Pereira and Gerald Mearshart, but he was able to knock out Bruno or Bruno Brad Tavares last time around in a fight that I honestly thought was stopped a little bit prematurely. I would have given Brad a little bit more rope here to try to bounce back and you know come back from that knockdown that he suffered. But Bruno Silva did his job, went out there, got the big knockout, and was able to get his hand raised and, in doing so, save his UFC career. Bruno Silva, high-level striker, I should say, or at least high-level power puncher with the amount of knockouts he's added to his record. His kind of downfall has been the grappling game that opponents have been able to take advantage of in the past, but... You know, he's been doing a good job in terms of staying safe enough in most of these fights so that he can eventually get back to his feet and knock his opponent out. That was evident in the Andrew Sanchez fight where he did a great job in terms of staying patient even off of his back in the first and second round until he knew Sanchez was going to slow down and then he found that knockout in the third round. Silva is still very dangerous at 33 years old. You have to respect his knockout power, but you have to wonder how high his ceiling is at this point of his career and if that knockout power will be the only calling card for him to get to the top of the rankings. It doesn't usually work out for fighters of his style, though. I feel like fight doesn't go to decision is probably the best way to attack this matchup as obviously the knockout power of Bruno Silva is very live to pull off the upset here, but I also think that the grappling advantage that... uh, that Brendan Allen will be enjoying in this matchup is going to be way too much for Bruno Silva. The guys that have had grappling success against Bruno Silva in the past in the UFC are not as potent finishers as guys like Brendan Allen. So I fully expect Brendan to get this fight to the ground and slowly work himself to a better dominant position inch by inch and eventually get that full mount and rain down big shots, eventually opening up a submission opportunity for himself and bringing that on home with him. Look for Brendan Allen to extend his winning streak to five fights this weekend and getting the victory by by submission. Fight doesn't, fight doesn't go to decision of violence. Probably the best way to go about it, though. Next up, we have a fantastic featherweight matchup between 10-2 David Onama going up against 10-1 Gabriel Santos. Starting off on the David Onama side, who's coming off of a loss to Nate Landwehr last time around, where he had very good success in the first round, but seemed to drop off in terms of his cardio and his willingness to eat damage from his opponent Nate Landwehr in the second and third rounds, losing that fight via decision and as a big favorite that night. David Onama had a lot of hype on his name considering the uh, knockout that he uh, put Gabriel Benitez through in his second walk to the octagon. That Nate Landwehr loss was actually his second loss with the promotion as he lost his UFC debut on short notice against a very tough out in Mason Jones and showcased a lot of good things in that fight, which is what made people very hyped about his prospect and uh, how good he could actually be. His other win in the UFC came against short notice newcomer and going up a weight class Garrett Armfield, but... Armfield, it just seemed he wasn't strong enough in those positions against Onama, which is why Onama was able to dominate him in the grappling and eventually find that submission victory. Onama has big power in his hands. He's very explosive and he's fast early on in fights, but it seems as though if he's not able to get his opponents out of there early, he starts to slow down, get demoralized, and obviously looks for a way out. He was one of the unfortunate fighters caught up in the crossfire of the whole James Krause betting scandal due to the fact that he was one of James Krause's star pupils. 
James put a lot of effort and, you know, uh, work into him. But now Onama was forced to find a different training camp to train out of, which is why he has now aligned himself with the Factory X guys over there in Denver, Colorado. He's uh, still a promising prospect, but I think people are starting to see that he may not be as good as they had initially thought. Still got to respect his knockout power and his striking abilities, but I'd still keep an eye on what he's able to do at this stage of his career. His opponent this weekend, Gabriel Santos, was the former LFA lightweight champion, or sorry, featherweight champion, before making the jump to the UFC on short notice a couple weeks after that title-winning performance. He took on Lerone Murphy earlier this year and came up short in a decision that a lot of people thought he actually deserved to win. He had a very solid first round and even a better second round, but it seemed like the fact that he was coming in on short notice and um, slowing down in that third round, Lerone Murphy was able to take over. But if you look at MMA decisions, if you look at the outcry after the fight, Gabriel probably deserved to get his hand raised. And I think Lerone Murphy benefited from a little bit of home cooking that night. But Santos still in the UFC, only 26 years old, has still a lot to showcase. And I think that we'll see that this weekend. He's a very aggressive striker that loves to move forward and put pressure on his opponents. And he has this very solid uh, jiu-jitsu game as well, whether it's from that top position or even from bottom. I think he's the, uh, I think he's probably one of the more promising prospects that we have on the roster right now. And that loss to Lerone Murphy will do great things for him at this point in his career. A good learning experience, seeing where he could have maybe stepped on the gas a little bit more. And again, even though he deserved to get the victory that night, it's still a good learning experience for him. And I look forward to seeing what he can do uh, starting this weekend. I feel like this is going to be a show-out spot for Gabriel Santos. As David Onama, yes, he has knockout power, but Santos has great aggression, forward pressure, and a great jiu-jitsu game that he can tie up and wear on David Onama and eventually get him out of there in the latter half of this matchup. Yes, Onama is probably looking back to or looking to bounce back uh, emphatically after that loss that he took to Nate Landwehr, but I'm not sold on him. Santos is the far superior fighter here and outside of a Hail Mary knockout for Monama I fully expect Santos to go out there and dominate this matchup so give me Gabriel Santos and I think he actually pulls off a submission victory here probably in the second or third round next up in the middleweight division we got eight and four Cody Brundage coming in on short notice to take on seven and one contender series alum Cedriquez Dumas Starting off on the Cody Brundage side, he's riding a two-fight losing streak right now and probably fighting for his job this weekend, which makes it even more curious for me as to why he decided to take this fight on short notice. Maybe it has to do with the fact that his training partner was actually the first opponent to give Cedricas Dumas his first loss in his UFC debut. So maybe Cody Brundage seems a little or sees some comfort and some uh, confidence in the fact that his training partner was able to do something that he might be able to go out there and do. He's apparently a strong wrestler, but I personally haven't been the most impressed from what I've been seeing from him. He's managed to get Oleg Shajak to the ground, but did a poor job in terms of holding him there, eventually getting knocked out shortly thereafter. His fight with Rodolfo Vieira defensively speaking was not a good look for him as he continuously gave up takedowns to the BJJ ace who was able to submit him in the second round of that matchup. Brundage's fights have been nothing but chaos over the last couple of fights which he's won two of them where he went to war against Alta Lungiambula eventually pulling off a choke to get that win and then the Trishan Gore fight where he was unable to secure takedowns against Gore but managed to land a beautifully beautifully timed counter that knocked Trishan Gore out who probably wasn't respecting Brundage enough in the striking realm. Brundage, again, 29 years old, 8-4, training out of Factory X, really needs a win this weekend if he hopes to save his spot on the UFC roster. His opponent this weekend, Cedricas Dumas, like I mentioned earlier, came up short in his UFC debut against Cody Brundage's training partner, Josh Fremd. Cedricas didn't seem to have much of an answer for the pressure and grappling style that Josh Fremd was putting on him, eventually tapping out to, I should say, quickly tapping out to a guillotine choke from Dumas or from a friend in the latter half of that second round. I think Dumas is still decent, but I just don't know if he has what it takes to hang at the UFC level. His striking game is very much compromised or um, 
is very much uh, just a, a kicking game. He likes to keep his distance and just chip away at his opponents from distance until he's able to get them to the ground and eventually do work from that top position where he seems to be most comfortable. I just don't know if he has what it takes to stick around. He's been cross-training over there at uh, Fusion XL as well, alongside Phil Rowe, who also competes on this card. But I just again, I, I have my reservations about the kid. He only has eight fights and hasn't really been fighting the highest level of competition on the regional scene. It might have been a little bit too premature for him to jump into the UFC at this point in his career. But we'll see this weekend if he's able to get Brundage out of there or not. Another spot where I probably think fight doesn't go to decision is the best way to go about it, but I'm going to go with the grapple-heavy approach of Cody Brundage. I think he can put on a good pace against Dumas here, uh, maybe even land some big shots on the feet, but I think he'll look to get this fight to the ground, try to replicate what Josh Friend was able to do, and then get that dominant position and get Dumas out of there. Dumas is a guy to me that seems like he looks for the exit when things are not going his way and considering how quickly he tapped that guillotine choke to Josh Fremd makes me believe that you know when things are not going his way he, like I said he'll look for that exit and I feel like Brundage could implement that style I'm not high on Brundage's money line at all in this spot um, I don't think Dumas really belongs in the UFC but I also think that Cody Brundage is a you know uh, a fringe UFC fighter as well so give me uh fight doesn't go to decision as my favorite prediction for this matchup but I'm gonna go with uh, Cody Brundage to get it done and likely inside the distance the co-main event goes down in the women's flyweight division and it's a very pivotal matchup between 11 and 3 Amanda Hibas and 12 and 2 Macy Barber Starting off on the Amanda Heba side, who's been alternating wins and losses over her last five fights, although she is coming off a victory over Viviani Arujo earlier this year. She showcased a very good striking where she was able to hurt Arujo in the second round, but it was also her grappling and top pressure that rendered Arujo useless in that matchup. Arujo did have a close armbar attempt in that fight, but it was Hibas's BJJ black belt and her just wherewithal that kept her safe in that fight and eventually was able to stay on long enough to get that decision victory. I've long harped on Amanda Hibas in the past, really not believing that she was as good as most people made her out to be. I was able to cash on her or against her in the Marina Rodriguez and Catlin Chukagian fights, but she continues to showcase improvements, which is why I ended up having to rip my ticket up against uh, her when she took on Viviani Arujo. Uh, her striking is really starting to come around, but it's really her jiu-jitsu game and her wrestling where she shines the most, I believe. Uh, her consistency and uh, just output on the striking realm exaggerates how good she actually is in the striking realm. She has great cardio. She's able to uh, really grind her opponents out when she needs to. And I think that she's starting to really get into her own now and showcasing that she can be at the top of this flyweight division if she starts stringing, stringing together a couple more victories. Her opponent this weekend, Macy Barber, is on a four-fight winning streak, although the fight that started this winning streak was very controversial where she got the decision victory over Miranda Maverick. However, she's been looking quite dominant over the last couple of fights. And even though the Andrea Lee fight probably uh, could have gone the other way as well, she did a very good job in terms of landing significant damage, which ultimately the judges were favoring that night. However, the two fights before that between, against Jessica I and Montana De La Rosa showcased the improvements and evolution of her game from being more so of a striking and power-based fighter to really going out there and utilizing her strength. She's a very strong fighter and it's hard for opponents to deal with her in the clinch and grappling realms. And we saw her render Jessica I and Montana De La Rosa, uh, you know, she, she shut them down with a strong clinch game and a strong wrestling game. But her defensive wrestling looks a little bit sketchy, especially in the Andrea Lee fight. You know, Lee was not really known for her takedowns, but we saw her land some sneaky trips and, and throws that eventually got that fight to the mat, which is what made the fight a lot closer than people expected it to be. Barber is still a promising prospect at 25 years old and is growing with every experience that she gets inside the cage. But I wonder how far she can take it, especially if she does not address the takedown issues or takedown defense issues that seem to be glaring in her matchups. But I look forward to seeing an improved version of her every time out and I can't wait to see what she showcases this weekend. Going into this matchup, I thought I would be betting the Macy Barber side and then I kind of flipped to probably wanting to bet 
Amanda Hibas in this spot. But I think that if I do still believe that Hibas has a little bit of the chink in her armor of her striking game, a girl like Macy Barber could fully take advantage of that. You know, her uh, explosivity, her power, her ability to land straight shots down the pipe could pay off for her. However, I think that Amanda Hibas is a far superior grappler. So if she can land some takedowns here, which seem to come pretty easy against Macy Barber nowadays... Hibas should be able to grind her out from that top position, maybe even open up a submission opportunity for herself. But I think if Hibas just stays on the pressure, stays on the pace, and pursues those takedowns after her striking, she should be able to control this fight and where it takes place, which will be in her benefit. So outside of, you know, Barber stinging Hibas on the feet with some power, I fully expect Hibas to control the majority of this fight and take home a decision victory. And it is time for the main event, and it goes down in the featherweight division. We have former interim title challenger Josh Emmett coming in with an 18-3 record. He goes up against undefeated phenom 13-0 Ilya Taporia. Starting off on the Josh Emmett side, he came up short and had his winning streak snapped last time around in his interim title fight back in February against Ayer Rodriguez. It seemed like he had a lot of issues trying to close that distance, land his big winging shots because Yair Rodriguez did such a great job of moving and staying on the outside while landing devastating kicks to the body that clearly affected Josh Emmett's game. And when Emmett was finally able to get the takedown, it seems like he was struggling with the offense and submissions that were being thrown up from Rodriguez, who eventually latched onto something in the second round and was able to get the tap and win the interim title. Josh Emmett is a... Uh, you know, often overlooked fighter, especially considering that he's 38 years old. He has a lot of big power in his hands, but it seems like he thrives when his opponents have sketchy uh, striking defense and are willing to engage with him inside the pocket where he's able to do his best work. He has some very solid wrestling as well, but he doesn't seem to lean on it that often considering he loves throwing those big bombs, hurting his opponents and either getting multiple knockdowns or even getting the knockout like he did against Mursad Bektich. He's a solid fighter and has been knocked out in the past, but you got to wonder at 38 years old how much more he has left to offer at this featherweight division considering that you don't normally see fighters this old being competitive at this stage of their career. His opponent this weekend, Ilya Taporia, 26 years old, has been nothing short of impressive since joining the roster in his short notice debut against Yusuf Zalal at the beginning of this pandemic era. That night, it looked like his cardio was really coming into play, and uh, he did start to fall off in the latter half of that fight, but still did enough in the first two rounds to get his hand raised by decision. However, he hasn't needed the judges' scorecard since that matchup, as he's finished Damon Jackson, Ryan Hall, Jai Herbert, and Bryce Mitchell last time around with a beautiful arm triangle choke. It was the Jai Herbert fight where we saw a little bit of chink in the armor from Taporia in terms of his striking defense. We saw Herbert hurt him very badly and he almost got finished, but he managed to rally back and get a knockout victory of his own, showcasing his durability and his resiliency. He's a very solid fighter, BJJ black belt, but he's getting more and more confident with his striking, which is why he's been able to brutalize his opponents on the feet and put him away, whether it's, uh, whether it's with just pure striking or a club and sub opportunity that he's been able to be successful with in the past. I've had my eye on Taporia since his title-winning effort for his lone Cage Warriors matchup against Brian Buland. I believe that was back in 2017 or 2018. And he took a long layoff, and I knew it was just a matter of time before he would make it to one of these big promotions. And he has made good on it ever since joining the UFC roster. Now is his opportunity to burst into the, uh, the title contention realm if he's able to get his hand raised this weekend. But let's see how he fares against the tough out Josh Emmett. I am so excited for this matchup. It's a fantastic fight between these two featherweights. And I feel like violence is on the menu for this matchup as well. Whether it's Josh Emmett landing some of his big power and putting Tupuri out, showcasing that the durability issues that he showed in the J.I. Herbert fight is something to actually be concerned about. Or Ilya Tupuri landing his own big strikes and possibly getting a club and sub situation of his own. Both these guys are going to go after it with Tupuri being the main catalyst here in terms of the aggression and pressure I expect him to put on Emmett. So violence, probably the best way to go, in my opinion. In terms of a side, I'm going to go with the younger fighter here in Taporia, but I think the line is a little bit too wide. If anybody's looking to chase value on Josh Emmett, I think the value, at least from my perspective, is on his side. The line shouldn't be this wide. 
Emmett has a tremendous amount of experience against high-level competitors and has come out on the winning end. Taporia riding a solid winning streak, obviously undefeated. A couple big wins in the UFC. He's taking a solid step up in competition here. Is he ready for the bright lights? Is he ready for the main event slot? Is he ready for five rounds? Time will tell, and I'm not willing to shell out minus 300 uh, you know, on a fighter like that uh, who hasn't proven it against a high-level co- opponent like Josh Emmett. So I'm going to go with violence here, and I will pick Taporia to win this fight, but I feel like the money line on Josh Emmett might be the side to take a bet on. Again, prediction, Taporia. Best prediction, violence, value, Emmett. So give me Taporia to win this fight, but give me violence to hopefully cash a probably a chalky ticket. And there you guys go, all 14 fights broken down for UFC Jacksonville. Good luck on all your action this weekend, folks. I got more segments dropping this week. Obviously, Thursday we do the uh, Locky Two-Step. Friday we do three best prop bets, but I'll be adding two new segments tomorrow and Wednesday so that I got something dropping each day of the week to keep you guys fulfilled and hopefully add some more betting angles for you guys uh, throughout fight week. Appreciate all the love and support as always. Especially appreciate the love on the MMA Fight Archive. You guys are killing it over there. Doing my best to keep it as up to date as possible so you guys have all the information that you guys need to make informed predictions and breakdowns as you have all the information you need right there to do all your researching. Appreciate every single one of you guys. As always, drop a like and subscribe below if you haven't already. And I'll see you guys throughout the week. Peace. Last thing.